Welcome to the Cannabivarum Podcast, the Cannabis Truth Podcast. I speak the language of cannabis freely and uncensored while educating my audience on the safe use of this live plant therapy. You should know what's in your cannabis, what's good and what's not. It does not come with an FDA stamp of approval yet. Using cannabis mindfully as medication is a different concept in the healthcare philosophy of the past hundred years. There's a lot to learn and consider. Cannabis is not dangerous, but it is not harmless either. This is Honey Smith Walls, a 21st century cannabis shaman, here to explain the language of cannabis in historical, political, and scientific terms so you can make educated decisions about the medicine you ingest. Hello, my friends. Although 82% of my audience at this point are women, I'm sure my next guest will affect you as much as he did me. And for those who served in the military, this next series will certainly take you through a mindful of memories. But I can't wait for you to meet a live poet warrior, a Marine who had the grace to understand a bigger picture and facilitated the security of hill tribes destined to enslavement by ruthless human traders. Meet wordmaster Mike Tucker, author of 48 books and counting, all to be found on Amazon.com and linked in the show notes. You may be wondering what this counterintelligence operative who traveled the world in service to our country in helping defenseless tribal nations avoid a horrific turn of events has to do with cannabis. Well, although he's an advocate for freeing the plant, his stories center mostly around his experiences in serving our country and others. But I met him through another friend on LinkedIn and found his stories irresistible. And I thought you would, too. Never did I think for an instant Mike Tucker would be so generous with his time. I couldn't stop the recording, and we talked for a whole series worth of podcasts. I hope you'll find him as entertaining as I did, and enjoy your quarantine travels today as we globetrot with this gentle rogue. Please help me welcome award-winning author and hero to many, Mike Tucker. Hey, it sounds like I've got Mike Tucker on the phone. Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you, honey. How you doing? Well, I'll tell you what. It, as we said in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and for me also behind Burmese Army lines and in Spain on that 24th, 1981, it ain't like losing an arm or a leg, but, you know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, my God, Mike. <laughs> I've already been halfway around the world with you. And we that's just right. said hello. That's right. Yeah, it, it all it all started in Spain on that glorious day when I discovered the, the wisdom of Hemingway and just how right he was, fight the good fight. And uh wait, 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 back up, back up for our audience, and I haven't right. said a not even a a, a, a a syllable about you other than hello. This 
dear audience, (laughs) if you are not already aware of one of the most prolific writers of our time, his name is Mike Tucker. He's got a whole slew of incredible books out on uh, Amazon. And if you're looking for a true story of great intrigue and courage, please Join us right now for a conversation with Mike Tucker. Hi, honey. Hello, honey. <laughs> balls. Honey, honey, remember, we smoke the sacred herb because <gasps> it is righteous and glorious. And I must say on public record here, federal law to legalize the sacred herb in all states and territories of the United States. I am on public record and rock on America. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you for that, Mike. Tell us, when did you first experience the sacred herb? And I love the story behind those two words for our precious plant, but uh, that, you know, that you told me earlier, but tell our audience, did you first experience the pleasure of the sacred herb? Well, i tell you what, I didn't truly, that's an excellent question, and God bless all the folks listening in. Uh, I didn't truly experience the sacred herb until the first mission behind Burmese Army lines. We saved 11 Pokion, also known as the Karen, Hill Tribes people. One of them was a three-year-old girl who Later on, she, she got married, and she's got a daughter in northern Thailand now. Mercy, mm. she's uh, she's 31 now. You're 30. still in touch with her. Yeah, yeah. She's 30. She's 32 this year, I reckon. She's born 1989. My yeah, and, and her husband is a hunter. Yeah, 2017, I went back and, and reunited with the refugees I saved from that first mission. And I was, of course, I was a Ronin on that mission. I was a freelance samurai. And I'll never forget the look in her eyes when she was crossing the Salawan River to northern Thailand in a skiff. And I was on rear guard. I I was tail end Charlie. We only had three. It was an ad hoc team. But God God bless those cats. We got the job done. And uh, she was she was looking back at me on. I was still on the Burmese shore Mm -hmm. and. Drew, one of who was, who was Karen, who was Pokion, one, one of my raiders, uh, Drew was paddling. And it was just her and her mother and Drew. And she, she was looking back at me and crying and smiling at the same time. Oh, my gosh. And that night with the, with the Pokion, who, who we liberated from a slave labor patrol, um, a Burmese Army slave labor patrol, we took them down. Uh, and, and liberated those Pokion. That night, we're sitting around a fire and in the Pokion way and, and celebrating the whiskeys being passed around and the Pokion oh. and, and the tea is being passed around. The, the Pokion drink tea with salt in it. So they crush up the salt and put some hill herbs and it's, it's, it's a little strong taste, but they have to because you sweat so much in, in the tropics, of course. All and right. We're deep in the mountains uh, on the Burmese border on the, on the Thai side. All of us feel very grateful to be alive. And, and Drew and Manu and me, the team, and of course I led the team, uh, very grateful to have saved their lives. And the little girl wasn't crying anymore. And her mother wasn't crying. And it was such an incredible 
time. And then we passed around the sacred herb. That's when I truly experienced the sacred herb. I had smoked it a few times. Don't get me wrong. I'd smoked it a few times stateside in my wild man days as a young poet in, uh-huh. in teens and twenties. And um, I, but I, but I never, I, I never truly experienced it until that night. And yes, I, we, we kept their names, uh, their real names uh, completely off public record and didn't, uh-huh. I didn't even talk about the raid. Even when I was in graduate school, I didn't even talk about the raid. Well, I I did on a couple of occasions, but people, it it was a strange time in graduate school in that way. The people I was around, they just didn't get it. They, they, it was just like, Oh, you, you freak, you, you killed these people in Burma and you saved some people. It was like, that was weird. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, you have to put that behind you, of course, and, and, and keep rocking. And they then, can't relate in any way, shape, or form about survival and reality. Yeah, in a different country, third world life. They can't. People yeah, can't understand yeah, any of that. Yeah, you're so right. Their minds were completely wrapped around abstract theories and literary theory and and critical this and critical that. And right. I I never forget they were and they were so indoctrinated. There was this one professor. In, in a grad school class. And he said, nothing is real. It is only perception. And here I am in graduate school. This was the fall of 96, my first semester in grad school. I'm doing my master's in literature on the GI Bill. Now, remember, this is four years uh, since I had liberated, since I'd had the honor of liberating those, those Pukion Hill Tribes folks, Hill Tribes right. people. From a, from a Burmese army slave labor patrol. And of course, as I said to that prof, listen, what you don't understand is, yeah, there's times in life when you have to decide I must do the right thing. And it's not perception, it's reality. And that was, yeah, that was, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 to, and, and then he came back at me with, well, uh, the Burmese army also had a point of view. I said, yeah, they had a point of view until I killed them. Well, and the Taliban has a point of view, too. Exactly. Hitler had a point of view. And, so, and I'm damn glad that my grandfather was at D-Day, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, straight up. Yeah. Mike, how yeah. old were you when you went into the Marines? I was, a, I was a young buck of 26. I still passed for 20. I had a girlfriend then was 19. When I met her, she thought I was 20 in, in the summer of 86. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was 26 at that time. Yeah goodness yeah you have had a, a a life you have had a life many many so things. so how, tell us can tell i start with the books and the poets and the poetry when did okay. you find when did you realize you were really a poet oh i realized i was a poet when i was 15 right i was i realized when i, I was a poet when i was 15 and real quick let me read you this poem, okay? Please. Because, because a lot of folks in New Mexico really like this poem. It's, it's for a woman I, I met out here, uh, Diana. Diana. She's, she's uh, Mexican-American. And, and God bless her. Um, this is for her, right? So, okay. for, Diana, for Diana. Your silly little grin and your kind heart and your beautiful dark eyes 
make the moon so jealous that sometimes it disappears for a few nights, runs away and hides somewhere between the North Star and Cassiopeia. The astronomers call it the dark of the moon, but they've got it all wrong, Diana. It's just the stars talking to the moon and telling it you deserve to see the crescent moon come back and shine in the night over Sandia Mountain. Oh, Mike, Cassiopeia is my favorite constellation and talking about Watermelon Mountain. Right. Geez, you just make me tear up. That's so beautiful. Lucky Diana. Hey, many, many thanks. That poem is from Love is a Fire That Never Dies, which is, of course, selling on Amazon. Uh, if anybody wants to get it, they just plug in Love is a Fire That Never Dies, Mike Tucker. With all my books on Amazon, you, you have to put my name with them, of course. Oh, you can just put Mike Tucker in Amazon and all of his books come up. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure how that works, but there's a there's a couple different writers and an author who are named Mike Tucker. Oh, well, I guess so. Sure, of course. Yeah. So get the right one. (laughs) Yeah. So the great thing is, and if, if somebody searches for love is a fire that never dies. And of course puts my name with it, uh, say on Google or on Amazon, they will get the direct link to the page on Amazon. And then on Amazon, they can click on the author central connection with my author's bio on Amazon on any book of mine like on Cigarettes in the Rain the one that's out now based on the on the on the uh, once classified historic counterterrorist operation on Okinawa right? and and they'll and they'll see it goodness what was your favorite book that you wrote Mike whoa merciful heaven that's a great question honey man I, I have to say my favorite is for Suzanne because I was in North China writing that book. It's the culmination of a, a lifetime of studying about the Chinese Revolution and finally living on the North China coast, teaching at the university there, and, and also, of course, having that great honor of being the first foreigner first foreign writer first american writer first foreigner ever to lecture on general wang Hua, the zapata of the mexican uh, i'm sorry the zapata of the chinese revolution general wang Hua, brilliant brilliant guerrilla war commander and a good man right what made um, you choose uh your dissertation on him how did you find out about him well i did my dissertation in i did my dissertation my my it's, master of arts in literature thesis i should say was on the old man in the sea um now the old man in the sea hemingway's right hemingway's the old man sea now which i'm now writing the book hemingway's destiny the old man sea which is that master's thesis revamped luckily over 300 people have used my my master's thesis in their scholarship and cited it in their scholarship i'm really really honored congratulations yeah Thank you. And then with Hemingway's Destiny, I've revamped it and and just the 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 
the theme of the, of the book is simply Hemingway's destiny was the old man of the sea. Looking at For Suzanne, which is volume two in the Journey trilogy, right? Uh, For Suzanne, the reason it's my favorite of all I've written is that it was so unexpected. Uh, I was out jogging in the snow February 25th, 2016, my first day in China. And I was on a year contract that was renewed twice. And then I chose to resign to to go to Portugal and to, to write Consal de Vento. That's a whole different thing. But in that time, on that day, jogging in the snow, two feet of snow, jogging near these irrigation canals near the North China coast, near the Bohai Sea, and just pure, incredible beauty. And then talking to the farmers along the way, I had, I had enough conversational Chinese to talk to the farmers and I'd lived in Asia a long time. So I, I knew so much about, you know, body language when you're communicating with folks in Asia. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll never forget the one farmer. He was, he was about 75, 76 years old at that time. And, and I'm talking with him and he's really stout guy, you know, huge shoulders, about five, seven, yeah. you know, reminded me of my grandfather, Jack Tucker, on my father's side. <laughs> and, and, and he, and we're talking and, I pointed to this huge field where there was a mound and I, 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 in English, I talked about a machine gun on that mound in the, in the Chinese revolution. Oh, uh -huh. and, and I, and I asked him in pidgin English and, and Chinese, was there a lot of fighting here? And, and did the fighting also go up to this, this irrigation canal in the winter? Because what I was thinking of is this is exactly how I would set up an ambush on, on the Japanese and on the opium dealers, on Chiang Kai-shek's opium dealers in that area, which is, it was the toughest area, that, the very toughest area uh, that, that Mao's guerrilla fighters fought in. And, and, and the guy was astounded. And he said, my, he said, grandfather, there, machine gun, yes. So his grandfather was a guerrilla fighter for Mao. Oh on, a on that mound I was talking to. And then he made a, he, he gestured all over the whole field, which is a huge wheat field. And, and he said, yes, fighting here, big fighting here and ice. Yes. And, and then I realized that's how it went down in this field. The guerrilla, Chinese guerrilla fighters used the frozen canal as an ambush point drew in, kind of drew, used the machine gunner for bait, and then drew in uh, at least a company of Japanese infantry. And, and then- Cracked the ice. And, exactly. And so this is all in for Suzanne. And good so Lord. then I had the great good fortune, of course, I was there at the university living and working with, in, a, in a Chinese university, almost always you are living on campus which makes it great because if you're in the canteen and, and you're having lunch, one of your students has a question about like, for me, I was teaching, I was teaching because of my background literature, I was teaching uh, and I was the only foreign teacher there. I was in the whole university and I was teaching Hemingway, Steinbeck, uh, some of Fitzgerald, 
And, uh, and also, I had the great freedom to teach all the great French poets that I love. Roger Giraud had tremendous influence on me. On I bet Fen- you were having a ball. Oh, yeah. It, it was a glorious time. And, and then, of course, I was nailing down. From, the, from that day, February 25th, I went back to my flat, to my flat in the university. I was right on the top. I had a great view of the fields and, and um and I started writing for Suzanne on that that night. And I realized, whoa, this is gonna be a great book. So I wrote it and wrote it, wrote it, and then it turned into the novella for Suzanne, which is the exact right length for it. It's it's a mysterious thing about writing a book kind of takes on a life of its own, but it also determines it how much of it needs to be told. I thought for Suzanne would be 300, 400 pages, mm-hmm. but at 125 pages, whatever it was, 130 pages, it's perfect. And, and, and so that's, and, and then the other thing about it, honey, is this, I love for Suzanne the most of all my books. Don't get me wrong. I want people to dig the rogue trilogy, the chieftain trilogy, <laughs> all of them, right? Love is a fire that never dies, but I love for Suzanne the most because the reason it became for Suzanne and as Hemingway had this great saying, always think about the reader, always, always, always. So when the reader discovers that question that is natural to the book, so why is this book titled for Suzanne? So who's Suzanne? Where does she come in? Et cetera. When the reader discovers that it's like a triple, it's, it's, it's like the triple climax of the book. It's just incredible. It's just like, yeah. Oh, oh, it's so intriguing. It sounds so juicy and wonderful. And you write about women. I'm no, no way. You write as a woman. You write yeah. for women. <laughs> that just blows me away. I, I don't understand how you're managing that, but that just well, blows me away. Yeah, I think that when you're like, we were talking about this the other day, when you're writing about a woman, you have to have, as, as a man, that is truly, the first time I did that was the most difficult thing I'd done in writing. I mean, I could, I could sit down and write a 400-page novel about a three-day mission in counterterrorism anywhere in the world, and it yeah. will rock. And it, it wouldn't have, for instance, it, it probably wouldn't have one woman in it. It will rock, and, and, it, and, 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 and so be it. Okay, I could do that standing on my head. But Except you're what, a romantic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I am with Homer. And this is why I, I despise Shakespeare and I dig Homer. Homer understood women, A, and Homer does not go and kill off his women. Penelope lives, <laughs> you know, and also with Hemingway, even though Hemingway's been, Hemingway has been derided by uh many scholars for oh, he is borderline misogynistic or there are some literary scholars who even oh, think his mother oh, was wacko misogynist blah 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 but Hemingway never kills the girl every every prominent woman character and every character every female character period in his books always makes it to the last act always survives except for Catherine in A Farewell to Arms because in that situation, Hemingway was writing about his second wife, Pauline, who nearly died from the cesarean. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, Hemingway saved her life. But then... How did he do that? Well, Hemingway went into 
I'm not sure if he was actually standing there the whole time or he was outside the door, but he, at the time when she was bleeding out and, and, and speaking frankly, which is the only way to speak it, having, having seen a, a few folks bleed out at war, I, I know just how, and, and having saved a few lives in this situation too at war, I, I know just, you know, how real this is and how you mm-hmm. feel, but he, he was called in and a nurse said, you know, we don't think your wife's going to make it. And Hemingway went in and remember Hemingway had done cesareans along with his father. He had assisted on cesareans when, when Hemingway was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And in, in the upper Michigan, the upper Michigan peninsula. And so cool Papa. Now I call Hemingway cool Papa H by the way. So (laughs) So Cool Papa H, Cool Papa H went in there and in his inimitable take charge, I'm Hemingway, I can get this done style. Cool Papa H told the doctor, she's not going to die. You know, know, and the doctor said, if you can save her, save her. I I can't save her. So Hemingway then tied off everything he needed to tie off, kept Pauline from bleeding out and and stitched her up and she lived. And that is she utterly amazing. Yeah, and he and she had no and the fear was there would be internal hemorrhages after mm. the procedure. But mm. she had no internal hemorrhages, and the little boy, Patrick, survived. And you know, Hemingway was famous for taking things from his or or a lot of folks don't know this, you know, when you do deep work on Hemingway that I did, then it's absolutely right. And necessary to share it with people. Hemingway mm-hmm. had this habit of taking something from real life, and then he would, what we call in writing, flip the switch, which means he would change the ending of how it actually. Oh. And then, no kidding. Yeah, and then he would write from the perspective of, so this is how it must feel for this to happen. Now that's incredibly challenging as a writer, but I think to be fair. From the beginning of a farewell to arms, which is what you know we're talking about, and and the the whole relationship of the real cesarean to to the to the death of Catherine in a farewell to arms. From the beginning of a farewell to arms, it's a tragedy, and Hemingway's favorite writer was Shakespeare, who who was deeply tragic, yeah, and and who who I mean Shakespeare had a great love story in Hamlet and he decided not to write it. The thing about writing is you have the hand of God and mm-hmm. you have to believe in a work in your heart in order to write it. But if you don't have it in your heart to save Ophelia, then what does it say about you? You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and so, so Shakespeare, if he keeps Ophelia alive, and Ophelia, speaking frankly as a man, Ophelia, men have a saying about women, about, about a woman like Ophelia. We call her the perfect babe or the perfect woman or the perfect lady. She's got it all. She's smart. She's hip. She's fun to be with. She makes the man feel good to be alive. And she's great company. And she's gorgeous and so on. She's the perfect woman. And there are plenty of women like that in this world. Don't get me wrong. Right. And, and there, there, there certainly are. Um, damn sure are in New Mexico. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, 
and and mercy if you keep Ophelia alive. See, you as a writer, like you you have that power. Like with for Suzanne, yeah, I could have written as you'll as you'll see when you read for Suzanne. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get to the end of that, you you know, people people have the right to say anything they want about it, right? So right. some people might say, well, well, what if you had written this? If what if you had done this with Suzanne? Da da da. Well, I wrote for Suzanne the way I wrote for Suzanne because I live by the maxim in counterterrorism, as in literature, as in life. Number one rule: save the girl. <gasps> oh. Mike, I love that. I love that's such a treasure. Safe. Thank girl. you. Yes, yeah, <laughs> such girl. a treasure. Women, women are the soul of the universe. Oh, thank you, love, for saying that. You're welcome. Sweet of you to say that. You're welcome. But looking at looking at Shakespeare, I, in after a mission in Afghanistan, we're sitting around talking about this because Shakespeare's up there on the pedestal, and and he has this. Laurel put on his head, da da da, and and uh, I remember in graduate school arguing with every professor I had. No, he's not the greatest writer ever. If he was the greatest <laughs> writer ever, Ophelia would have lived. Yeah, he would have saved the girl. <laughs> yeah, he would have saved the girl. He killed off the Lear sisters. He killed off Ophelia, and in Romeo and Juliet, he proved that he cannot read a map. I will explain why. Okay. Now, so didn't it make you wonder who Shakespeare's mother was? Oh, it, it makes it it doesn't what it, it it makes me think that he he used his work as a means to exercise as an, an ex, as an exorcist right. to exercise his demons and yeah. his self-pity and his hatred of himself and it, and and more than anything else, he his hatred of his wife because she was six months pregnant when she told him, "Hey, Willie the Shake, uh, I'm up here in Stratford on Avon, and I'm I'm down here in London today to tell you that that this little baby is your baby, and you know that for a fact, and I know that for a fact. So you're going to be the father, and this is this is how it's going to be. And I seriously doubt if he loved her, but I, I noticed that he sure spent a hell of a lot of time in London uh, during his life. Now, he he did take good care of his daughters and he did. Really? Fin- yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he when I say that, he gave them all the financial support, et cetera, et cetera. And he took good care of his wife in that way, too. But. Where was if you really love a woman, if you if you really believe in love and then and you have the means to be with that woman, you're with her. Right. That's it. That's it. And 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 I noticed that every time, every damn time, excuse my French, (laughs) he every every time Shakespeare has a chance to save the girl. Every time he has a chance to really make it rock, right? Yeah. He, he decides, no, she's not going to make it to the last act. I'm going to kill her off. You don't kill off your woman unless in your, your writing, you have hand of God. The only reason a woman character dies is because, for instance, as in a farewell to arms, it's a tragedy. It's, it's a terrible thing. It can't be helped. And, and these things do happen in life. Sometimes 
the worst things do happen to the best people. And Catherine was a tremendous woman, very multidimensional. She, she, she was one of the best female characters Hemingway ever wrote about. But I noticed that despite Hemingway's own broken heart over his famous uh, affair with the American nurse in World War II, Agnes von Kurowski, right? Despite that, right? Hemingway didn't go and write Catherine as a, like he, like she's a man hater or anything. He wrote Catherine like a terrific woman who has a big heart and a, and a deep soul. And her soul is torn apart from when he first meets her when Frederick Henry first meets her in A Farewell Arms, Catherine is torn apart. Her soul is ripped apart by the fact that her, her love, her lover, the man she wanted to spend all her life with and the rest of her life with is blown to pieces in France. You know? It's so and sad. And such it, a common story throughout history. It, it's, it sure is. And that, and, and that relationship and that affair and that love, that true deep love between Frederick Henry and Catherine Barkley, it is just so convincing and, and so real. I mean, I tell young writers all the, all the time, if you, want to, you, you, if you want to read a book and you want to feel the love between two characters, right? You want to feel that love, mm. just, read, just read A Fair With Arms. But, you know, Hemingway, un unfortunately, um, unfortunately, in my view, this is one of, one of, the, few, one of the few things I'm critical about him. Um, but in, in my view, he would have been a hell of a lot better off if Homer had been his favorite writer. <laughs> Instead of Shakespeare. Have oh, you yes. ever written a character that you do not like? I mean, Has you were just having a hard time writing about him because you didn't like the character and you had to portray a you know, SOB or something. Oh, have, have, have I written, have I ever written a character I, I did not like? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. At the beginning of rogue, you'll mm -hmm. see that 10,000%. You'll see that. And I just had to roll with it. Uh, you, you have to, uh, and it's one of the, it's one of the few female villains in any of, in fact, I think she's the only female villain in any of my books. But and the title the of that one is rogue. The title of that one is Rogue, right? Anybody Forgive the audience. I, I, I yeah, get his absolutely. books mixed up Rogue. because he's written over, what, 47, 48, yeah. 49. And 40. I happen to know that he's already working on two more. And so yeah. I get his titles a little confused, but I can't wait to read Suzanne. I can't wait to read Rogue. Yeah. And you've done a couple of trilogies, have, have you not? I've written three trilogies. I've written the Rogue trilogy. And then the Chieftain trilogy. Now, the connection between the Rogue trilogy and the Chieftain trilogy is that the hero of the Rogue trilogy, Jed McCullough, is from New Mexico and he's real cowboy and he's the grandson of Irish refugees on both sides. Mm. He's, his grandfather is one of the main characters in The Long Ride, which is a Civil War novel I'll write later on this fall after Paco and Giselle. And so Jed McCullough is the hero of the Rogue Trilogy and born in 
1904, born in 1904 in uh, Chama in, in New Mexico. And I'm, I'm sorry, Tres Piedras. He's from Tres Piedras. Uh, he's from Tres Piedras, which is northern New Mexico, deep in northern New Mexico, and real cowboy country. Now, meanwhile, the that's the Rogue Trilogy. And then McCullough is, is, is the, the helm, the anchor of the Rogue Trilogy. Now, his son, Nate McCullough, Nate McCullough is born in 1960, and that's kind of that's kind of late in Jed McCullough's life. But uh, Jed McCullough's Jed McCullough's wife Maria Santos, right? Her her name uh, first was Nikki. I had to change it from Nikki because Nikki is a, a terrific lady, really cool lady. But Nikki is married, and I decided <laughs> I decided Mike Tucker's law must abide. I'm not going to make any trouble for a married woman. Oh, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> good for you. I, I told I told the young snipers in Afghanistan, honey, and Iraq, I told them, you abide by this law. You never mess around. You never make a play for a married woman. That's it. You do that, your life will be fine. No you don't kidding. do that. There's going to be a shotgun at your door. The business end of the shotgun's going to be facing you, and that's going to be the last thing you ever see. Yeah. <laughs> Good words to live by. Yeah. For all men. And women, too, I might add. There you <laughs> Just go. stay in your own lane. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So then the Chieftain Trilogy is, of course, the Nate McCullough. Uh, the, those are the, the, the Nate McCullough stories. Which is me. I'm Nate McCullough, um, although I'm not six one and one ninety. And, and well, you will be in my eyes when I read that book. Well, most cool, most cool. And <laughs> the, the 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 really surprising thing about the Chieftain trilogy for me writing it is when Nate falls in love and and gets married. Now I'm I'm divorced and I got through that and I. As anybody knows who's been divorced, it's it, it's rough. It's um, rough. But Nate is a guy who doesn't get married until he's 46, if I'm not mistaken. And his his wife, Julie, the first time she meets him, um, she she thought he was like 35, 34, 35, which is that's right out of my own life. When I was 46, women were telling me, well, aren't you like 34? No, baby. That was, that was a good year, but that's, that's a little while ago. <laughs> that's that sweet baby face of yours. Yeah. And, and uh, so she's 27 when she meets in 27, 28, he's 46 and, and how they meet and, and all of that is so, so vital to East River, and I'm not going to I'm not going to give it away how it is vital, but East oh, River, no. volume one of the Chieftain trilogy, which is set right in this year, really rocks. And that that great love story of of Nate and Julie, the Chieftain is is Nate McCullough, son of Jed McCullough. That's that's that just so it it just makes all the books that much better, even though in terms of length, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's not huge. It's not massive, but the, the great thing is what I learned from the old man of the sea, uh, what I learned from that great passage where Santiago reflects on his wife mm -hmm. and he only does that once. And, and he's just remembering her, her photo, or there's a mention of her photo 
uh, on a on a stand or in the, in the tin shack before uh-huh. Santiago goes out, goes out. And then there's the great metaphor for commitment and love and commitment, where the where Santiago is at sea and he remembers the the two swordfish and the male swordfish following the the female swordfish that Santiago had captured on a previous expedition out to sea. And and Hemingway has that great line. And he remembered and he remembered the 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 male following the female. He loved her and he stayed. Whoa. There it is. And there it is. Yeah. And so looking, you know, looking looking at that as a writer too, it's it's so reflective of how Hemingway had a, a genius for I only need to put something in a book once in the right place and it will shine like a diamond for the rest mm-hmm. of the story. It'll be in the it'll be in the in the in the undercurrent of the of the story, you know? So that aha thing. There it oh, is. Yeah. You know, yeah. there it is. That's right. And you take that that little golden jewel, you know, you place it in your heart, and that's what you think of the book. Every time you think of the book, it's that aha thing, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And Brett, the 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 real life character for Brett, died here in New Mexico in the late thirties, early forties. Hemingway in in an interview was he talked about that he went on public record in the 50s he was asked about different word were different characters and the sun also rises based on mm-hmm. real life people and he said mm-hmm. yeah he said they all were and then and then the uh the interviewer asked what about brett and hemingway said uh she she died in in new mexico uh you know years years later he gave the year so i can't remember i apologize to your listeners for the exact year but that's another thing about about you know how Hemingway portrayed women. Brett is as different from Pilar in mm-hmm. *From the Bell Tolls* as as a, a woman I know who's who's named Rachel here in New Mexico. As as Rachel is different from uh, from Alexa, who's an, a, another young lady I, I met out here, and and of course of course she is. They're two different women, you know. And right. so, and Brett, and, and yet the way that Hemingway conveys Brett and the way that he describes her, the way that he writes her is, is I remember the first time I read that book, I remember putting it down and I thought she reminds me, I'm not going to say my aunt's name because she's deceased now. God bless her. And, and I, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. She reminds me of Aunt Peggy. That's what I, oh. I put that book down and I thought she reminds me of Aunt Peggy because Aunt Peggy was a was a very spirited woman and lived an incredible life. She she lived. Oh, Lord. She was I think she was 92, 93 when she died. And mm. and uh, she she was just such a caring, real um cool incredible woman and and she was like brett she would just you know speak her mind uh and and 
it, you know, and I and I remember thinking, man, Hemingway, he really can write about women, and so, so I guess you know that's for me that's that's one of the great things I got from his work. But Homer, Homer understands love is it, love is the be all and end all. Homer understands that love makes life worth living, and you must save the girl. There's no equivocation there. You must save the girl. Odysseus. Yeah, Mike, it's not often that we get to see the construct of the inside of a man's mind and how his, um, how his thoughts have been determined by the influences in, in his life. But it's it's real obvious with you. You had some pretty amazing influences who helped guide your thinking about women and it's so impressive i just want you know i want that book list so i can send it to all the guys i know who need a broader opinion of women <laughs> cool 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 yeah yeah um, absolutely absolutely well I've, tell I've me seen... why you don't have ptsd after all of your experiences is it because you write is it because you're a romantic? Is it because would, you think of love and peace before everything else? That's, you know, I'll tell you what, honey. When I was in Afghanistan, that's a great question. And I really appreciate how you asked that question. Because on recently on another podcast, I won't mention uh, who did it and when it was. But it, it, it was absolutely the worst experience for me as a Marine veteran. It was condescending the, uh, and, and so on. The, the oh. idiot who, who asked me about PTSD, he was just ranting and raving. And finally, I, I, I just shut him down. But oh. you asked the right question. And you asked oh. in such a cool way. I really appreciate it. The answer to your question is the same one I gave to a U.S. Army major in Afghanistan after four of my friends were blown away by IEDs on the same oh. day. Mm. And, and I had that went down on June the 1st, 2009. At that time, I was in a different province in Afghanistan with a different unit unit. I was in Logar near the Pakistan border. So I told the scouts, the U.S. Army scouts I was with in Logar, uh, gents, you know, God bless you. I'll make sure you get in the book. Uh, the, the book ended up being called uh, Bring the Heat. And then it was uh, another book I did based on that called Taking Down Al-Qaeda in Hindu Kush. But I then made my way, thanks to the U.S. Army and 10th Mountain Division, I made my way back to Wardak, where my friends had been killed, killed in action. And uh, and they, they were Jeff Hall, Matt Wilson, Matt Wilson only 19, and, uh, and uh, O.B., Oberkairur, who is whose last name is so difficult to pronounce, everybody just called him Obi, oh, and cute. and Matthew Ogden, who is from Texas, is thirty three when he died. He had volunteered for U.S. Army Infantry at thirty two. He was mm. a tattoo artist. He was a classic Texan. He was he was the salt of the earth, a real rock mm. hunter. Loved uh, he, he loved uh, ZZ Top and uh, mm. and and. Uh, Almond Brothers, and he was oh. he was full often. And Jeff Hall, who I said first, Jeff Hall was a former ranger and a, a brilliant commando, great warrior, and uh, and and a good friend. And I'll never forget Jeff Hall in the snow in January that year, January 09, 
and we were deep in the snow and there were no operations because snow was like four feet, four or five feet high everywhere mm. in Nurk Valley and, and on the base we were at in Madin Shar. Um, and uh, Jeff pointed to the frame, he had framed photos of his wife and, and little baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, and he said, I've been here. He's talking about Afghanistan mm-hmm. and he said, I've been, I've been here and I can tell you, I'm just fighting for them now. And he pointed to his wife and his, his baby. Mm. And it, it, it's just, it's just the worst situation here. But that's, that's what I'm fighting for. Hawk. He called me by my, my old code name, which was my oh. nickname and is my nickname Hawk. And I, and I said, uh, I said, Jeff, that's all you need, brother to survive and, and get back to your wife and child. You know that I'm praying for you. I won't oh. be with you the whole year. I'm going to be with a lot of snipers in different places, but you know, I'm going to be praying for you. So when they, when they were all killed by IDs on, on a mission that completely, mm. uh, it, it completely, uh, that, that mission completely reflects the, the idiocy of the Afghanistan war, what mm. it became after January, 2002, it, a counterinsurgency merry-go-round, or as we called it in Afghanistan in 09, the counterinsurgency goat fornication. Oh. All, these, all these media running around kissing General Petraeus's backside and telling mm. him how he was and so on and so forth. But the reason that Jeff Hall and Matt and OB and OG are dead uh, are because the missions they were on were in support of reconstruction aid. The decision had been made that a road needed to be built in the Nurk Valley connecting the Jarez Valley. Well, the last person that tried that was Alexander the Great. Oh. And, and when Alexander the Great tried to build that road way back yonder, the, the Peshtu in the Nurk Valley took dug out the paving stones and piled them up in their fields to show just how much contempt and scorn they had for this Greek reconstruction aid. So Alexander the Great was informed of this by his combat engineers and his aides. He went up to Wardak. He went up into the Nurk Valley. He sat down with the tribal chieftains, just like the American commanders uh, the coin robots, I call them, the counterinsurgency robots, mm-hmm. sat down with the tribal chieftains in the Nurk Valley in 09 and broke bread. And Alexander the Great broke bread, broke bread. And he broke bread and, and he said, why did you guys do this? My, my combat engineers built you a road and it connected the Nurk Valley to the valley on the other side, the Jarez Valley. And now, for the first time in the history of the world, you're going to be able to transport all your vegetables and fruits. And you've got the best orchards and, and you've got grapes, you've got olives, you've got et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And apples. The Wardak, before the Soviets destroyed much of Afghanistan, Wardak was the apple orchard for all of Central Asia. More apples were sold from out of Wardak and from out of the Nurk Valley than any other, than any other place in Central Asia. So and feed the kids and make yeah. good brew for the men at night. There you go. There you go. And so, 
the tribal chieftains told Alexander the Great, we don't want uh, to be connected to the Jarez Valley. Mm-hmm. We, we dug out the paving stones because we don't want a road. We don't want any of the men in the Jarez Valley who are also Pashtu. We don't want any of them coming on that road so easily so they can look at our women. Hmm. And that is that was the most frustrating thing about Afghanistan. The thing that at a fundamental level, the CIA never understood at a fundamental level, the Pentagon never understood. But I understood it straight away because I had lived with other hill tribes it's in Asia. Yeah. yeah. That I, I had lived with hill tribes that respected women, the Pokiyan, the Hmong, the Black Lahu in northern Thailand. And and I I had lived in villages in northern Thailand where women are deeply respected. And yes, where they go to school right with the young boys in northern Thailand. And and so Alexander the Great shook his head. He left those those meetings with those tribal chieftains, and the and the, the paving stones remained in the fields. Now, three thousand and some odd years later, here here come here comes the Pentagon and the CIA saying Reconstruction aid is the answer. The counterinsurgency will will win. You're wrong, Mike Tucker. You don't understand the wisdom of counterinsurgency, blah, 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 right? Oh, that sounds just like an American, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I looked at these, I looked at, I never forget talking to a CIA counterterrorist officer. After I was wounded in the Hindu Kush, this guy was part of the JSOC team at the siege of Barshmatal. And by the way, the U.S. Army and the, U- and the U.S. government, period, did not allow any media on that firebase during the siege of Barjmatal because CIA was there. The only reason I was allowed there is because A, when I was a Marine, I was secret clearance. B, they knew, Langley knew, and the Pentagon knew that I'd been on the classified mission, Cigarettes in the Rain, in Okinawa in 80, right, which is now yep. the book, and, and was classified from 88 to 2013. And B, I'd been on missions with Delta Force in Iraq. And if if Delta Force signs off on you and says, hey, this guy was yeah, following, this guy's okay. yeah. then, you know, you're you're in. And so and then B, I was attached to U.S. Army 10th Mountain Snipers, who the CIA and JSOC had reached out to and said, we need these guys as security element for this SEALs on this JSOC team and for also for the CIA. So I was with those snipers. So if the snipers go, Mike Tucker goes. That's how it was. And and so I rolled into Barshmatal. Right away, I knew who the CIA cats were. And they were very standoffish, and I left them alone. My, my rule in the field, when when I was around anybody from the CIA, but especially in the clandestine service officers like these cats, my rule was just leave them alone. I don't need to know their name. We'll never speak their name, etc. And they came up to me after I was wounded because now, now evidently they decided my opinion was worth something. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, and, and one of them said, you're, we've, we've heard you're a fierce critic of 
the CIA Pentagon long war strategy and, and of the counterinsurgency here. Uh, why, why are you not supporting American policy in Afghanistan? I said, guys, look around. That mission that I was just on three days ago where I was wounded. Uh, yes. Both of you decided not to go on that mission. Well, you were tasked with different things by Lang. I said, okay, I understand. You guys are still part of the manhunt for bin Laden. And they were. Right? What they didn't know was as a Ronin for the Europeans, I was also part of a manhunt for bin Laden at that time and had been since since 01. Right? So, oh, my gosh. Anyways, anyways I, I said to him, so what is it? What is salient about the mission that I was wounded on in terms of the war? What's salient, guys? Come on. You, you, you've got degrees from Yale. You know, you, you're, you're supremely well-trained in counterterrorism. You, you're well-read. What's salient? And they, they were silent. I said, okay, I'll tell you what's salient. We did not allow any Afghans on the mission. And their eyes went huge, and they looked at each other and nodded. And I said, oh. you know, that the reason for that, guys, is because... We do not trust the Afghans. And I made damn sure that the snipers that I was with knew all of the here's how I was nearly killed because the Taliban ordered me to get killed by the Afghan National Army or the Afghan National Police in different parts of Afghanistan in 2009. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thank God that and Biden, by the way, uh, then Vice President Biden, I got his analyses and his thoughts on the war in Afghanistan from JSOC. JSOC was he right? He was so right. In 09, in 09, he was telling President Obama and he was and he had the he had the conviction. He had the backbone. He had the spine and the courage to say to the face of the director of the CIA in 09 and the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs and so on, you all are wrong. We have wasted billions and billions of dollars on a war that we cannot win, and the reconstruction aid is a complete and utter failure. We must remove American combat troops from Afghanistan. Now let me ask you this. I'm yeah. dying to I'm dying for somebody to tell me this because I just don't understand it. Why didn't they start taking out the Afghan support team before the American military? They knew this was coming. Why didn't they do it before they evacuated the military team? I don't get it. Well, here's the juice. The Pentagon and the CIA controlled the last year in Afghanistan, just like the Pentagon and the CIA had the, the switch, the lever, and the, and the influence in the last 20 years. And just, and in the last, the reason that happened is because the Pentagon and the CIA have been in denial about the, the, the eventual Taliban uh, control in Afghanistan since January 2002. Um, so do the you reason think that there's do you think that there's uh, American interest in the, um, the the metal in the mountains? The, I'm sorry, the NICAD, the, the you know that goes into the 
batteries and stuff. No, that, right. no, no. If if there if if that did, I I heard that I, I heard that in '09 in the field in the Hindu. Well, I just cook. heard it mentioned on the news right. like three times in the last two weeks. So I'm wondering. Right, right. Well, one thing is one thing is, honey. Uh, and I mean absolutely no offense to you or to your listeners, but one thing is the the reporters the 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 same we have in counterterrorism and intelligence is the same thing we have in in writing. Consider the source. The people who are seeing these things have never set foot in Afghanistan, and they're they're grasping at straws, trying to come up with an angle to write a story that will sell and that will. That, that, that will appeal to people's, uh, oh, yeah, that's the real reason kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But bottom line, no, if the Americans had what any that? serious, if the Americans had any serious interest in any, any mining interests in Afghanistan, then the Americans would have brought in American mining corporations in January 2002 and told them, we just destroyed Al Qaeda in this country. We've just ended the Taliban rule. And and Hamid Karzai has been installed as the the new Afghanistan. Now here here's all this metal for you to dig up, and you go and dig it. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. All the Afghans had to do was wait for the Americans to leave. And with our sad history of doing that, yeah, exactly. It was Vietnam in many ways, and at the same time, it wasn't because. We had to strike and kill Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and the Taliban was lashed up deeply with Al-Qaeda, not just in Afghanistan, but also in, in Pakistan. Now, here's where, again, I stand against the Pentagon and CIA on Central Asia. In 2009, the Pentagon and CIA, official spokespeople, Pentagon and CIA, Right. Which means mm-hmm. it's the official policy of American government, because, mm-hmm. you know, it, in in America, sadly, in American foreign policy still today to this moment, CIA drives the train and the, and the Pentagon is is on for the ride. That's it. Pentagon and state are along for the ride. CIA drives the train. But wow. that's but that's why that's why we've had so many tragedies in American foreign policy. Hey, we're taking a break here, but Mike will be back on the next episode to take us on that magic carpet ride to places far, far away in cultures most of us will never see firsthand. But with the spirit of Hemingway firmly planted in his chest, Mike Tucker will make you taste the air. Come back for more on the next Cannabavarum podcast wherever you listen. You've been listening to another Cannabis Verum podcast with 21st century cannabis shaman Honey Smith Walls about the importance of using safe hemp and marijuana products. The process of taking your records with your symptoms and diagnosis to a cannabis specialist can lead you to the correct cannabinoid therapy for your best results. Otherwise, you're just your own guinea pig looking for answers without 
any foundational knowledge or ability to determine the best choices. Unless otherwise proven by a reputable third-party lab test, please be advised that all street weed is contaminated. It may do grave harm to a patient with a delicate immune system. I challenge you to check the veracity of my statements in each episode by checking the medical citations posted on my podcast blog at the com website. That's C-A-N-N-A-B-A-V-E-R-U-M dot com. <laughs>